Introduction to the Worst Journey in the World, Volume 1, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Introduction, Part 2. This period of time saw a great increase in the interest taken in science, both pure and applied, and it had been pointed out in 1893 that we knew more about the planet Mars than about a large area of our own globe. The Challenger expedition of 1874 had spent three weeks within the Antarctic Circle, and the specimens brought home by her from the depths of these cold seas had aroused curiosity. Meanwhile, Borch Grevink, 1897, landed at Cape Adair and built a hut which still stands and which afforded our Cape Adair party valuable assistance. Here he lived during the first winter which men spent in the Antarctic. Meanwhile, in the Arctic, brave work was being done. The names of Parry, McClintock, Franklin, Markham, Nares, Greeley, and DeLong are but a few of the many which suggest themselves of those who have fought their way mile by mile over rough ice and open leads with appliances which now seem to be primitive, and with an addition to knowledge which often seemed hardly commensurate with the hardship suffered and the disasters which sometimes overtook them. To those whose fortune it has been to serve under Scott, the Franklin expedition has more than ordinary interest, for it was the same ships, the Erebus and Terror, which discovered Ross Island, that were crushed in the northern ice, after Franklin himself had died. And it was Captain Crozier, the same Crozier who was Ross's captain in the south, and after whom Cape Crozier is named, who then took command, and led that most ghastly journey in all the history of exploration. More we shall never know, for none survived to tell the tale. Now, with the noise and racket of London all around them, a statue of Scott looks across to one of Franklin and his men of the Erebus and Terror, and surely they have some thoughts in common. Englishmen had led the way in the north, but it must be admitted that the finest journey of all was made by the Norwegian Nansen, in 1893 to 1896. Believing in a drift from the neighbourhood of the new Siberian islands westward over the Pole, a theory which obtained confirmation by the discovery off the coast of Greenland of certain remains of a ship called the Jeannette, which had been crushed in the ice off these islands, his bold project was to be frozen in with his ship and allow the current to take him over, or as near as possible to, the Pole. For this purpose, the most famous of Arctic ships was built, called the Fram. She was designed by Colin Archer, and was saucer-shaped, with a breadth one-third of her total length. With most of the expert Arctic opinion against him, Nansen believed that this ship would rise and sit on top of the ice when pressed, instead of being crushed. Of her wonderful voyage, with her thirteen men, of how she was frozen into the ice in September 1893, in the north of Siberia, 79 degrees north, and of the heaving and trembling of the ship amidst the roar of the ice-pressure, of how the Fram rose to the occasion as she was built to do, the story has still, after twenty-eight years, the thrill of novelty. She drifted over the eightieth degree on February 2nd, 1894. During the first winter Nansen was already getting restive. The drift was so slow, and sometimes it was backwards. It was not until the second autumn that the eighty-second degree arrived. So he decided that he would make an attempt to penetrate northwards by sledging during the following spring. As Nansen has told me, he felt that the ship would do her job in any case. Could not something more be done also? This was one of the bravest decisions a polar explorer has ever taken. 
It meant leaving a drifting ship which could not be regained. It meant a return journey over drifting ice to land. The nearest known land was nearly five hundred miles south of the point from which he started northwards, and the journey would include travelling both by sea and by ice. Undoubtedly there was more risk in leaving the Fram than in remaining in her. It is a laughable absurdity to say, as Greeley did after Nansen's almost miraculous return, that he had deserted his men in an ice-beset ship, and deserved to be censured for doing so. The ship was left in the command of Sverdrup. Johansen was chosen to be Nansen's one companion, and we shall hear of him again in the Fram, this time with Amundsen in his voyage to the south. The polar traveller is so interested in the adventure and hardships of Nansen's sledge journey that his equipment, which is the most important side of his expedition to us who have gone south, is liable to be overlooked. The modern side of polar travel begins with Nansen. It was Nansen who first used a light sledge based upon the ski sledge of Norway, in place of the old English heavy sledge, which was based upon the Eskimo type. Cooking apparatus, food, tents, clothing, and the thousand and one details of equipment without which no journey nowadays stands much chance of success, all date back to Nansen in the immediate past, though beyond him, of course, is the experience of centuries of travellers. As Nansen himself wrote of the English polar men, how well was their equipment thought out and arranged with the means that they had at their disposal. Truly there is nothing new under the sun. Most of what I prided myself upon, and what I thought to be new, I find they had anticipated. McClintock used the same things forty years ago. It was not their fault that they were born in a country where the use of snowshoes is unknown. All the more honour to the men who dared so much and travelled so far with the limited equipment of the past. The real point for us is that, just as Scott is the father of Antarctic sledge travelling, so Nansen may be considered the modern father of it all. Nansen and Johansen started on March 14th, when the Fram was in latitude 84 degrees 4 minutes north, and the sun had only returned a few days before, with three sledges, two of which carried kayaks and twenty-eight dogs. They reached their northernmost camp on April the 8th, which Nansen had given in his book as being latitude 86 degrees 13.6 minutes north, but Nansen tells me that Professor Gilmoyden, who had his astronomical results and his diary, reckoned that owing to refraction of the horizon was lifted, and if so the observation had to be reduced accordingly. Nansen therefore gave the reduced latitude in his book, but he considers that his horizon was very clear when he took that observation, and believes that his latitude was higher than that given. He used a sextant and the natural horizon. They turned, and travelling back round, pressed up ice and open leads, they failed to find the land they had been led to expect, in latitude 83 degrees, which indeed was proved to be non-existent. At the end of June they started using kayaks, which needed many repairs after their rough passage, to cross the open leads. They waited long in camp, that the travelling conditions might improve, and all the time Nansen saw a white spot he thought was cloud. At last, on July 24th, land was in sight, which proved to be that white spot. Fourteen days later they reached it to find that it consisted of a series of islands. These they left behind them, and, unable to say what land they had reached, for their watches had run down, they coasted on westwards and southwards until winter approached. They built a hut of moss and stones and snow, and roofed it with walrus skins cut from the animals while they lay in the sea, for they were too heavy for the two men to drag onto the ice. When I met Nansen he had forgotten all about this, and would not believe that it had happened until he saw it in his own book. 
They lay in their old clothes that winter, so soaked with blubber that the only way to clean their shirts was to scrape them. They made themselves new clothes from blankets and sleeping-bags from the skins of the bears which they ate, and started again in May the following year to make Spitzbergen. They had been travelling a long month, during which time they had at least two very narrow escapes, the first due to their kayaks floating away when Nansen swam out into the icy sea and reached them just before he sank, and Johansen passed the worst moments of his life watching from the shore. The second caused by the attack of a walrus, which went for Nansen's kayak with tusks and flippers. And then one morning, as he looked round at the cold glaciers and naked cliffs, not knowing where he was, he heard a dog bark. Intensely excited, he started towards the sound, to be met by the leader of the English Jackson Harmsworth expedition, whose party was wintering there, and who first gave him the definite news that he was on Franz Joseph land. Nansen and Johansen were finally landed at Vardo in the north of Norway, to learn that no tidings had yet been heard of the Fram. That very day she cleared the ice, which had imprisoned her for nearly three years. I cannot go into the Fram's journey, save to say that she had drifted as far north as 85 degrees 55 minutes north, only 18 geographical miles south of Nansen's farthest north. But the sledge journey and the winter spent by the two men has many points in common with the experience of our own northern party and often and often during the long winter of 1912 our thoughts turned with hopes to Nansen's winter, for we said if it had been done once why should it not be done again, and Campbell and his men survive. Before Nansen started, the spirit of adventure, which has always led men into the unknown, combined with the increased interest in knowledge for its own sake to turn the thoughts of the civilised world southwards. It was becoming plain that a continent of the extent and climate which this polar land probably possessed might have an overwhelming influence upon the weather conditions of the whole southern hemisphere. The importance of magnetism was only rivalled by the mystery in which the whole subject was shrouded, and the region which surrounded the southern magnetic pole of the earth offered a promising field of experiment and observation. The past history through the ages of this land was of obvious importance to the geological story of the earth whilst the survey of land formations and ice action in the Antarctic was more useful, perhaps, to the physiographer than that of any other country in the world, seeing that he found here in daily and even hourly operation the conditions which he knew had existed in the ice ages of the past over the whole world, but which he could only infer from vestigial remains. The biological importance of the Antarctic might be of the first magnitude in view of the significance which attaches to the life of the sea in the evolutionary problem. And it was with these objects and ideals that Scott's first expedition, known officially as the British Antarctic Expedition of 1901-1904, to but more familiarly as the Discovery Expedition, from the name of the ship which carried it, was organised by the Royal Society and the Royal Geographical Society, backed by the active support of the British Government. The executive officers and crew were Royal Navy, almost without exception, whilst the scientific purposes of the expedition were served in addition by five scientists. These latter were not naval officers. The discovery left New Zealand on Christmas Eve, 1901, and entered the belt of pack ice which always has to be penetrated in order to reach the comparatively open sea beyond, when just past the Antarctic Circle. But a little more than four days saw her through, in which she was lucky, as we now know. Scott landed at Cape Adare, and then coasted down the western coast of Victoria Land, just as Ross had done sixty years before. 
as he voyaged south he began to look for safe winter quarters for the ship and when he pushed into mcmurdo sound on january twenty first nineteen o two it seemed that here he might find both a sheltered bay into which the ship could be frozen and a road to the southland beyond the open season which still remained before the freezing of the sea made progress impossible was spent in surveying the five hundred miles of cliff which marks the northern limit of the great ice barrier passing the extreme eastward position reached by ross in eighteen forty two they sailed on into an unknown world and discovered a deep bay called balloon bight where the rounded snow-covered slopes undoubtedly were land and not as heretofore floating ice farther east as they sailed shallow soundings and gentle snow-slopes gave place to steeper and more broken ridges until at last small black patches in the snow gave undoubted evidence of rock and an undiscovered land now known as king edward the seventh land rose to a height of several thousand feet the presence of thick pack ahead and the advance of the season led scott to return to mcmurdo sound where he anchored the discovery in a little bay at the end of the tongue of land now known as the hut point peninsula and built the hut which though little used in the discovery days was to figure so largely in the story of this his last expedition the first autumn was spent in various short journeys of discovery discovery not only in the surrounding land but of many mistakes in sledging equipment and routine it is amazing to one who looks back upon these first efforts of the discovery expedition that the results were not more disastrous than was actually the case when one reads of dog teams which refused to start of pemmican which was considered to be too rich to eat of two officers discussing the ascent of erebus and back in one day and of sledging parties which knew neither how to use their cookers or lamp nor how to put up their tents nor even how to put on their clothes then one begins to wonder that the process of education was gained at so small a price not a single article of the outfit had been tested and amid the general ignorance that prevailed the lack of system was painfully apparent in everything this led to a tragedy a returning sledge party of men was overtaken by a blizzard on the top of the peninsula near castle rock they quite properly camped and should have been perfectly comfortable lying in their sleeping bags after a hot meal but the primus lamps could not be lighted and as they sat in leather boots and inadequate clothing being continually frostbitten they decided to leave the tent and make their way to the ship sheer madness as we now know as they groped their way in the howling snowdrift the majority of the party either slipped or rolled down a sleep slippery snow slope some thousand feet high ending in a precipitous ice cliff below which lay the open sea it is a nasty place on a calm summer day in a blizzard it must be ghastly yet only one man named vince shot down the slope and over the precipice into the sea below how the others got back heaven knows one seaman called hare who separated from the others and lay down under a rock awoke after thirty-six hours covered with snow but in full possession of his faculties and free from frostbites the little cross at hut point commemorates the death of vince one of this party was a seaman called wild who came to the front and took the lead of five of the survivors after the death of vince he was to take the lead often in future expeditions under shackleton and mawson and there are few men living who have so proved themselves as polar travellers i have dwelt upon this side of the early sledging deficiencies of the discovery to show the importance of experience in antarctic land travelling whether it be at first or second hand scott and his men in nineteen o two were pioneers they brought their experience at a price which might easily have been higher and each expedition which has followed has added to the fund 
The really important thing is that nothing of what is gained should be lost. It is one of the main objects of this book to hand on as complete a record as possible of the methods, equipment, food and weights used by Scott's last expedition for the use of future explorers. The first object of writing an account of a polar voyage is the guidance of future voyagers. The first duty of the writer is to his successors. The adaptability, invention and resource of the men of the discovery when they set to work after the failures of the autumn to prepare for the successes of the two following summers showed that they could rise to their difficulties. Scott admitted that food, clothing, everything was wrong. The whole system was bad. In determining to profit by his mistakes, and working out a complete system of Antarctic travel, he was at his best, and it was after a winter of drastic reorganisation that he started on November 2nd, 1902, on his first southern journey with two companions, Wilson and Shackleton. It is no part of my job to give an account of this journey. The dogs failed badly. Probably the Norwegian stockfish, which had been brought through the tropics to feed them, was tainted. At any rate they sickened, and before the journey was done all the dogs had to be killed or had died. A fortnight after starting, the party was relaying, that is, taking on part of their load and returning for the rest, and this had to be continued for thirty-one days. The ration of food was inadequate, and they became very hungry as time went on, but it was not until December 21st that Wilson disclosed to Scott that Shackleton had signs of scurvy which had been present for some time. On December 30th, in latitude 82 degrees 16 minutes south, they decided to return. By the middle of January, the scurvy signs were largely increased, and Shackleton was seriously ill and spitting blood. His condition became more and more alarming, and he collapsed on January 18th, but revived afterwards. Sometimes walking by the sledge, sometimes being carried upon it, Shackleton survived. Scott and Wilson saved his life. The three men reached the ship on February 3rd, after covering 960 statute miles in 93 days. Scott and Wilson were both extremely exhausted and seriously affected by scurvy. It was a fine journey, the geographical results of which comprised the survey of some 300 miles of new coastline and a further knowledge of the barrier upon which they travelled. While Scott was away southwards, an organised attempt was made to discover the nature of the mountains and glaciers which lay across the Sound to the west. The party actually reached the plateau which lay beyond, and attained a height of 8,900 feet, when, as far as they could see in every direction to the westward of them, there extended a level plateau. To the south and north could be seen isolated Nunnataks, and behind them showed the high mountains which they had passed. A practicable road to the west had been found. I need to note no more that these two most important of the many journeys carried out this season, nor is it necessary for me to give any account of the continuous and fertile scientific work which was accomplished in this virgin land. In the meantime a relief ship, the Morning, had arrived. It was intended that the Discovery should return this year as soon as the sea ice in which she was imprisoned should break up and set her free. As February passed, however, it became increasingly plain that the ice conditions were altogether different from those of the previous year. On the 8th, the Morning was still separated from the Discovery by eight miles of fast ice. March the 2nd was fully late for low-powered ships to remain in the Sound, and on this date the morning left. By March 13th all hope of the discovery being freed that year was abandoned. The second winter passed much as the first, and as soon as spring arrived sledging was continued. These spring journeys on the barrier, with sunlight only by day and low temperatures at all times, 
entailed great discomfort and, perhaps worse, want of sleep, frostbites, and a fast accumulation of moisture in all one's clothing and in the sleeping-bags, which resulted in masses of ice which had to be thawed out by the heat of one's body before any degree of comfort could be gained. A fortnight was considered about the extreme limit of time for such a journey, and generally parties were not absent so long, for at this time a spring journey was considered a dreadful experience. "'Wait till you've had a spring journey,' was the threat of the old stages to us. A winter journey lasting nearly three times as long as a spring journey was not imagined. I advise explorers to be content with imagining it in the future. The hardest journey of the year was carried out by Scott, with two seamen, of whom much will be written in this history. The names are Edgar Evans and Lashley. The object of the journey was to explore westwards, into the interior of the plateau. By way of the Ferrar Glacier, they reached the ice cap after considerable troubles, not the least of which was the loss of the data necessary for navigation contained in an excellent publication called Hints to Travellers, which was blown away. Then for the first time it was seen what additional difficulties are created by the climate and position of this lofty plateau, which we now know extends over the pole, and probably reaches over the greater part of the Antarctic continent. It was the beginning of November, that is, the beginning of summer, but the conditions of work were much the same as those found during the spring journeys on the barrier. The temperature dropped into the minus forties, but the worst feature of all was a continuous headwind, blowing from west to east, which combined with the low temperature and rarefied air to make the conditions of sledging extremely laborious. The supporting party returned, and the three men continued alone, pulling out westwards into an unknown waste of snow, with no landmarks to vary the rough monotony. They turned homewards on December 1st, but found the pulling very heavy, and their difficulties were increased by their ignorance of their exact position. The few glimpses of the land which they had obtained as they approached it in the thick weather which prevailed only left them in horrible uncertainty as to their whereabouts. Owing to want of food, it was impossible to wait for the weather to clear. There was nothing to be done but to continue their eastward march. Threading their way amidst the ice disturbances which marked the head of glaciers, the party pushed blindly forward in air which was becoming thick with snowdrift. Suddenly Lashley slipped. In a moment the whole party was flying downwards with increasing speed. They ceased to slide smoothly. They were hurled into the air and descended with great force onto a gradual snow incline. Rising, they looked round them to find, above them, an icefall three hundred feet high down which they had fallen. Above it the snow was still drifting, but where they stood there was peace and blue sky. They recognised now for the first time their own glacier, and the well-remembered landmark, and far away in the distance was the smoking summit of Mount Erebus. It was a miracle. Excellent subsidiary journeys were also made, of which space allows no mention here, nor do they bear directly upon this last expedition. But in the view of the winter journey undertaken by us, if not for the interest of the subject itself, some account must be given to, of those most aristocratic inhabitants of the Antarctic, the Emperor Penguins, with whom Wilson and his companions in the Discovery now became familiar. There are two kinds of Antarctic penguins. The little Adélie, with his blue-black coat and his white shirt-front weighing sixteen pounds, an object of endless pleasure and amusement, and the great, dignified Emperor, with the long curved beak, bright orange headwear and powerful flippers, a personality of six and a half stones. Science singles out the Emperor as being the more interesting bird because he is more primitive, possibly the most primitive of all birds. 
Previous to the Discovery expedition, nothing was known of him, save that he existed in the pack and on the fringes of the continent. We have heard of Cape Crozier as being the eastern extremity of Ross Island, discovered by Ross and named after the captain of the Terror. It is here that with immense pressures and rendings the moving sheet of the barrier piles itself up against the mountain. It is here also that the great ice cliff which runs for hundreds of miles to the east, with the barrier behind it and the Ross Sea beating into its crevasses and caves, joins the basalt precipice which bounds the knoll, as the two-knobbed saddle which forms Cape Crozier is called. Altogether it is the kind of place where giants have had a good time in their childhood, playing with ice instead of mud so much cleaner, too. But the slopes of Mount Terror do not all end in precipices. Farther to the west they slope quietly into the sea, and the Adelie penguins have taken advantage of this to found here one of their largest and most smelly rookeries. When the Discovery arrived off this rookery she sent a boat ashore, and set up a post with a record upon it, to guide the relief ship in the following year. The post still stands. Later it became desirable to bring the record left here more up to date, and so one of the first sledging parties went to try and find a way by the barrier to this spot. End of introduction, part two.